the other day my children turned on the sound of music there's a scene in that movie where the whole von trapp family is riding around singing a song on a bike on bicycles right and they started giggling like crazy and pointing at the screen and like that's so dangerous that's so da-. and i was like what's so dangerous it's like a family riding a bicycle like, they have no helmets on they have no helmets Welcome to the Medical Dads Podcast, a parenting podcast by two dads who happen to be medical doctors. I'm one of your co-hosts, Dr. Stuart Harmon, a pediatric emergency room physician and father of four from Ottawa, Ontario. I want to be in the podcast. Daddy, do you know what you're doing? Can I play a game on your computer? Daddy, where's mommy? And I'm your other co-host, Dr. David Shu, a family doctor from Toronto, Ontario. Welcome aboard. All right, Dr. Harmon, we're back for another week of Medical Dads. That's right, back for another week. Let's do this. Let's make some noise. <laughs> now, for those of you who are at home and have no idea, Dr. Harmon slept one hour last night after his shift, but he's still here recording. That just goes to show how much value we put in producing this show. <laughs> or how much effort we think it takes to make one of these episodes. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just wheel a carcass of a dead man. <laughs> <laughs> and make him tell some jokes. Can literally do this in my sleep because I will be sleeping <laughs> during several portions of this. <laughs> well, let's try. Let, and you know what? This is a, this is a dangerous episode because you know I've been reviewing like our modus operandi, and sometimes we can get a little bit full of it when we start doing medical education, <laughs> right? And today we are going to talk about a medical topic. We're going to talk about head injuries, so. You know, don't worry. I I'll, I have the scissors. I'll snip the episode up if uh, if we get a little bit too verbose. Well, it's appropriate that I'm feeling kind of punchy right now. Uh, one, because it's a good <laughs> pun for concussion mechanism. But also, we tend to go on more tangents and get off the main topic more often when we're when we're doing these a little tired. So <laughs> perhaps that'll stop us from getting too medical, boring people too much. Well, let's let's start by talking about head injuries. Head injuries are actually a really really common thing. Yeah. Right. I mean, all of us have hurt our head at some point. And as we go through our childhood, you know, most of us, especially boys, are hurting their heads constantly. Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, that's, that's such a pediatrics thing, kids hitting their head. <laughs> it's like their, their bodies are designed to fall and hit their head. Right? Their coordination <laughs> is poor. Their center of gravity is weird. Their heads are relatively large compared to the rest of their body. <laughs> <laughs> On the bright side, though, they're also designed to protect themselves from falls because they're not that That's tall. Right. So the distance that they have to fall isn't that much. And their their mass isn't that huge. So the momentum involved is not that That's crazy right. at a young age. So that's the bright side. But the downside of it is that, you know, you, you just get frequent head injuries. Yeah. And so parents are always looking at their child, especially when they're in the two to three year old range and are like, you know, he just hit his head. Like, what yeah. do we do? So maybe just as a quick thing, like, when should a parent take a child to a medical expert after hitting their head? If the child gets knocked unconscious, uh, if after getting hit in the head, the child's having multiple episodes of vomiting, uh, if after hitting their head, their behavior is, persist- is, is bizarre, like they're acting strange and that's persisting, um, if mm-hmm. after they hit their head and they're a bit older, like enough to talk, they don't remember or can't describe what happened, they, they have no recollection of, of hitting their head, uh, these mm-hmm. would be red flag features for me. And how much time, like a lot of times parents, yeah, I kind of tell parents this and they're like, 
well, how much time am I watching for this? Like, when's the danger, most dangerous period after a head injury? Like, at some point, can I relax and stop thinking about that injury that happened a couple of days ago? Well, from the point of view that with a head injury, the thing I'm, I'm worried about missing, the thing that I'm thinking, okay, this could actually become catastrophic uh, in terms of life-threatening, would be if there's bleeding or swelling inside of the brain. And that generally mm-hmm. is going to manifest these symptoms within about six hours. So, I mean, okay. there's always weird little exceptions or things that don't follow the textbook. But if after six hours your child has not had multiple episodes of vomiting, uh, they, they never lost consciousness, they're not complaining of a headache that's getting worse and worse and worse, and their behavior isn't extremely bizarre, then you can pretty much breathe a sigh of relief that, okay, you made it past the, the hump, you're more or less out of the woods. Now, as an emergency room physician for children, do you, when your children get hit on the head, do you do that thing where you wake them up throughout the night to check on their their mental status like that is an advice that many emergency rooms give patients i myself have even attempted to do this like you know after and and found that this is completely silly like your child is fast asleep sleeping well let's try to rouse them and ask them a few questions do you know who you are where are you right it makes no sense it makes no sense i tell patients specifically not to do that that's part of my discharge instructions It's in a lot of these handouts, you know, when the emergency room gives you like the head injury brochure, right? They send you home with that thing. Oftentimes it's like check on your child throughout the night. And then looking at him like, what are you hoping to find? (laughs) That is definitely not in any patient handout you're going to get from the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario where I work and where we practice what we like to call evidence-based medicine. (laughs) So any any place that's giving you that, uh, you start to be a little suspicious of just how how qualified Uh, they are to... (laughs) I don't know, man. I've heard that advice bandied throughout my medical training to the point that I'm now passing it on to people. I mean, I think in the old days that was advice given based on maybe some theory or some experience. But in actual practice, it's been shown that it does not save any lives. And uh, Mm -hmm. when the brain is injured, the child actually needs sleep to get better. And so if you're waking them up every two hours uh, throughout the night, then you're almost guaranteeing that in the morning they're going to feel worse than they would have if you just let them sleep. Every two hours. I, I mean, I say I tried. I tried it one time overnight. I, was, I have seen these things where they say to check on the child every yeah. few hours. And that is just getting ridiculous. I mean, when you think about it, what, what's that meant to achieve? So my child hit their head and now they're bleeding slowly into their brain. And they would have died, but I woke them up and it saved their life. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> well, it's meant, it's meant to have the parent feel some pain through <laughs> this process. Right. They don't want to let medical dad get off scot-free while the child is suffering alone. This is actually your penance prescribed by your doctor uh, to make you pay for being negligent and not watching your kid closely enough to allow them to fall into their head. So let's talk a little bit more about more serious head injuries, specifically concussions. Because actually this topic is all over the place these days. Like if you open a sports page, you open like a medical research journal, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world of head injuries and concussions these days. Things that were not going on even when we were students, you know, like 20 years ago. Well, you know, you say talk about things that are more serious. Concussion is less serious than what we were just talking about, which is knowing when your kid Mm -hmm. has bleeding or swelling in their brain. So I'll often sort of explain things to parents as, When kids get hit in the head, I like to divide it into three categories. Minor head injury, where they hit their head and they don't really have any symptoms beyond maybe they vomited once or they had a headache, but things were better within about 15 minutes. That's that's Mm -hmm. what Dr. Stuart Harmon describes as a minor head injury. 
And then the step above that is having a concussion, which is something that we define by your symptoms and which we'll talk about in more detail. And then I say the third category mm -hmm. and the one that I actually am most afraid of missing is if there's bleeding or swelling inside of the brain. Uh, so right. concussion to me is in the middle category. So although it's important to talk about concussion and it's been getting a lot of uh, sort of media coverage over the last few years and more recognition, I do want people to know that your child isn't going to, strictly speaking, die from a concussion. Now, growing up, my parents were definitely afraid of head injuries yeah. for us. Like my mom had had read somewhere or heard through the mom network of, of Taiwan that if you if you get hit on the head enough times, you're going to become dumb, <laughs> right? The prevailing sentiment of our childhood was that you cannot have any major head yeah. injuries. So forget about signing up for ice hockey or football or any of these fun things, yeah. right? You're not allowed to play them. And I think we've mentioned this in another episode, but do not walk anywhere where a golf ball <laughs> might go fly and hit you in the head, right? And, and so that was like one of the main things. Like we had this drilled into us that head injuries can be very serious, yeah. right? At the same time, my parents never asked me to ride, wear a helmet <laughs> when I rode my bicycle, right? The, the other day, my children turned on The Sound of Music. There's a scene in that movie where the whole Von Trapp family is riding around singing a song on, a bi yeah. on bicycles, right? And they started giggling like crazy and pointing at the screen and like, that's so <laughs> dangerous. That's so da And I was like, what's so dangerous? It's like a family riding a bicycle. Like, they have no helmets on. They have no helmets. And I realized that the times have really changed now. That That's what we get out of that scene. Yeah, it's very true. Uh, I'm sure in much the same way, we grew up in the era of seatbelts, uh, but our parents mm -hmm. probably did not. And so they must also uh, sort of look, look at that and say, yeah, it's, it's so crazy how it's completely second nature for my child to put on a seatbelt. They would never dream of driving in the car without one. And yeah, we used to drive around bouncing around the back of a pickup truck with no seatbelt, no nothing. Absolutely. There was a time when I, I never really wore a bike helmet until I was a medical student. When we were in medical school, me and another girl from our class who never wore helmets and we rode around town all the time. At some point, we were like, you know what? We've, we've, we meet all these patients in the wards, and at, I think I was at one point I met a patient with a serious yeah. head injury that developed permanent like brain right. injury, right? Like they went from being like a functioning ad adult to functioning like yeah. a child. And it was so like, I remember this vividly. I was like, I'm just going to put this ugly bucket on my <laughs> head from now on when I ride my bike. It's not worth it. And that person had just fallen off a ladder to, to cause this, right? So it can be a life-altering thing. Right. If you get into that category three yeah. of yours, like the serious head. Yeah, absolutely. And although we want people to wear helmets, we sometimes give people the false impression that the data or the science shows that helmets prevent concussions. Uh, but they don't. Mm -hmm. Helmets have not been shown to prevent right. concussions. What they have been shown to prevent is that that third category of injury uh, of breathing or swelling. Mm. So it may not save you from a concussion, but it, uh, on the other hand, could save your life. So we're going to talk today mostly about concussions. So why don't we tell, because there's probably a significant number of people listening to this who do not fully understand what it means when they hear the word concussion. Like they start thinking about football player, hockey yeah. player, head injury. Like what, it, what does it mean exactly? So they, like the textbook definition is a concussion is a traumatic brain injury induced by biomechanical forces. So, you know, you give people that and they're no further ahead in understanding what concussion is. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks. That's another 30 seconds That's of our right. podcast. So what I, the way I explain to people, I say concussion is the name we give it when you get in the hit in the head or when you get hit and the forces travel to the head 
And then afterwards, you have concussion symptoms or the symptoms that we use to define concussion. So uh, it's a, that def definition, what I like about it is that with it, it means concussion is not something you can see on a CT scan or an MRI. Mm -hmm. Concussion is not actually a specific bleed in a certain part of the head or a specific injury in a certain part of the brain. It's really just the definition we give for the symptoms. So you could have completely normal head imaging, completely normal uh, looking brain from all visible ways of measuring the appearance of the brain. But if you have concussion symptoms, that's actually how you know you have a concussion. Uh, I break it up into just four broad categories to make it a bit easier for people when I'm describing it. So there's physical symptoms. So like you described, nausea, mm. dizziness, trouble with balance, sometimes blurry vision, double vision. There's mm -hmm. uh, cognitive symptoms or thinking symptoms. So trouble concentrating, trouble remembering things, trouble uh, paying attention, sometimes just feeling spaced out. Um, and then there's sleep symptoms. So uh, yeah. not just feeling tired throughout the day, you can certainly have that, but also sometimes having trouble staying asleep at night or waking up often throughout the nighttime. And then the third category is the emotional symptoms, which is usually more along the lines of mood changes, mood swings, uh, maybe feeling anxious. Uh, so I, I wouldn't want people to get the impression that, you know, I got a concussion and the next thing I knew I was suicidal. Um, it's probably much more complex, the relationship between suicidality and concussion. Um, but yeah, it, it can definitely uh, like affect mm -hmm. your emotions. So, so you can see there's this quite a broad range of symptoms. Right. And you only have to have one or two of those symptoms to say you have a concussion. The thing is, a lot of these symptoms, you know, while we listed it this way, the symptoms sometimes are kind of vague. You know, they're hard to pin down. Like a lot of the times the patient will be like, I just don't feel completely right. And, you know, people around him will look at the patient and say, you look okay to me, right? There's no obvious thing happening to you. You're sitting there, yeah. right? And it, I think that adds to this because it's, it's this whole realm of concussions is a, t is a branch of medicine that's not well understood even by physicians because yeah. it's fairly new that we've been really diagnosing it and, you know, giving advice on it. Yeah. So it's not well understood by us. It's definitely not well understood by the general public, <laughs> right? So when, when you have a concussion, the people around you tend not to know what you're talking about. Yeah. Right? And if they're your employer or your teacher... A lot of times they're like, get with the program. You know, you need to be back to work. You need to be back to school. You, be, you know, I don't see anything obviously wrong with you. So that adds to it, right? That adds to the mental stress of the whole thing. You feel like no one knows what you're going through. Yeah. And it's just a long, long process for some people. Like, I think one, another useful way to think about concussions is they can vary in duration of these symptoms. Like, we haven't mentioned that part of it. Yeah. Many times the symptoms are mild, right? So within a couple days, you know, a, a week or two, it settles, right? But there are times where you get a nasty concussion and a patient can, you know, months afterward or even years afterwards still have residual symptoms and it's still going on. And it, it, so the spectrum of, of this injury is so vast. Yeah. I mean, many definitions of concussion include the concept that the symptoms are by definition transient. So, yeah. you know, if you have permanent lifelong changes, then you, would, you wouldn't really call that a concussion anymore. You'd say you've maybe acquired brain True. injury. True. But yeah, the symptoms can take minutes to develop. They can take hours and sometimes they can take days. So mm -hmm. it's already confusing for people if they got hit in the head, thought they were fine for a day, and then now they're starting to have symptoms the day after. Right. And uh, for children, at least, I can tell you that the majority of children's symptoms will go away within two weeks. But about 30% of kids will have symptoms that last for four weeks or more. 
You know, mm-hmm. so you're talking about you know, almost a third of kids or so having symptoms that go for more than a month. Yeah, it's pretty frightening if you think about it that way. Yeah. And it's, like you say, complicated because the symptoms are subjective, right? It it relies on the patient to tell you they're having the symptoms. It's not that I can do a test and confirm, oh, yes, this patient really is having headache. And so that's where it gets uh, frustrating for people because somebody might just have been anxious before they got hit on the head. Uh, They got a hit that seems really mild, and now they're having what they are describing as increasing their anxiety. And there's doubt about whether that's actually from a concussion or not, especially when it's mm-hmm. starting to last longer than you would think a concussion should last. Right. Uh, and then it's also frustrating for the patient if, they're, if it really is concussion-related and they are having trouble getting people to buy into the idea that, no, these symptoms are caused by something. I'm not just anxious mm-hmm. or imagining my symptoms, right? Right. I mean, the poster child for this thing is Sidney Crosby, you know, the hockey player for the Pittsburgh Penguins. Right. About 10 years ago, I guess it's a little less than 10 years ago, he went through a period where he had a few major concussions on the ice. Yeah. And he, like, I think at least one time he missed almost an entire season. So almost a full year of play. Yeah. Right. Because he, he just could not get better, you know, and be considered safe to be go back on the ice. Yeah. So, you know, we do say transient, but transient, again, can be a long period of time for people, even very active, fit, healthy people. Yeah, well, going a bit beyond the discussion that probably parents listening to this are going to mostly relate to, but this issue of people who, who do activities where they're getting repeated concussions. Mm-hmm. You know, if Sidney Crosby had a concussion, came to see me in the children's emergency department, followed my guidelines, he probably wouldn't have any issues. But if you keep having <laughs> concussions again and again and again, the symptoms yes. can get worse with each subsequent concussion. Uh, mm-hmm. And it takes less and less force to elicit those symptoms of concussion the more you have, especially right. if you haven't given yourself time to recover before you have the next one. Right. So why don't we talk about what these guidelines are? Like, let's say, you know, I don't expect parents to be able to diagnose whether their child has a concussion or not, because even physicians, you know, need training to sort of figure this one out. But yes and let's no. say <laughs> <laughs> yes, and people come into the emergency department like, uh, yeah, I, I, he hit his head yesterday, and he's been having a headache since then and feeling nauseous. And I just wanted to make sure, I, is it a concussion? I'm like, <laughs> say no more. It is. <laughs> no physical exam, no nothing. You, yeah, you just, is it a concussion? <laughs> he hit his head, so, he's having concussion symptoms, done. <laughs> so l- let's say that a physician diagnoses it or that, you know, it's we, we've decided that this person has a concussion. Yeah. Right? Now, what is the strategy that you're going to tell the parents? Like, how, what are they supposed to do? with the child, given that they have a concussion, so the, right? The They're showing some symptoms. The treatment for concussion is all centered around rest and then a, a gradual return to activity. There's no mm. medicine that you need to take. Uh, there's no special diet that you, that you have to eat. Uh, it's just all centered around rest. So usually the way we'll do it is we'll break it into stages and you'll do rest at a, a certain amount of rest for a certain stage. And after 24 to 48 hours, if your symptoms are manageable, then you progress up to the next stage. Mm-hmm. So without going into ridiculous levels of detail, uh, you know, you hit your head, you're having concussion symptoms. The first stage is essentially like no real activities. So you know, don't do anything that provokes your symptoms or makes you feel any worse. So mm-hmm. that usually means that you're not going to be going to school or doing any school work for that first 24 hours. And while you're at home, we don't really want you... Uh, doing your homework or reading books, but we also don't want people doing anything with a screen. So no television, no uh, computer, no iPad. 
you no. can have conversation with people. <laughs> so you can talk to someone on the phone. That's okay. You just okay. can't start playing, you know, Candy Crush or Pokemon Go or whatever on your phone. Now, um, stage one, I find interesting because you're mentioning you're mentioning now that the guideline is that they just should be resting for one or two days. It's not very long, right? Yeah, if we're talking complete rest where you're doing no physical activity right. and no mental activity. That's not historically that the advice was different, right? If you go back like 15 years ago, there was a period where doctors were telling patients you should hibernate after a concussion, and the, the longer you hibernate, and the longer you really let it rest, the longer you'll feel better. So some patients or people who've you know, were given this old advice decades ago when they yeah. had a head injury. We'll listen to this and be like, "That's not. That's different from what they experienced." Yeah, it's funny these changes. I mean, in the time that I've been practicing, uh, it's pretty much always been a stepwise return to activity. And the mm -hmm. thing that changed the most is that it used to be, so you do say step one, no physical, no mental activity, and you progress to the next step when your symptoms have resolved. Uh, mm -hmm. And that could easily take a week. If we're telling right. people that even if you're doing everything right, it could take a couple of weeks to get better, uh, right. if not a month, then yeah, you have a lot of people who, well, if I'm following my doctor's orders, I can't even turn on the TV for, you know, <laughs> for a couple of weeks. And what's changed with that is that now we tell people you progress to the next step as long as your symptoms are manageable. So you don't have right. to be completely back to normal. You just have to be saying, okay, yeah, well, I can manage with this symptom and then you right. go to the next step. Right. There's uh, this whole like idea in like neuroscience that if you use your brain and you activate it you start to promote healing as opposed to just not using it you know healing takes place more slowly it's a similar concept with like physical injuries i suppose yeah at least that's the theory although it could just as easily be you tell somebody to do no activity whatsoever and you have two people with the same symptoms the same mild headache or whatnot well one of them has nothing to do but sit around and and perseverate on their symptoms I sit around all day thinking about like, oh man, my head hurts. Whereas the other person is now going to school, doing activities that can distract them. Um, so that might be part of why people actually well, report that, fewer symptoms. Well, that's why my family is perseverating on COVID while we all sit at home <laughs> and right. your family is at school moving on with the life. That's right. We're all just as sick as each other, but uh, we're distracted. <laughs> so, okay. So that's stage one. So you get a day or two of rest for a serious brain injury concussion but yeah. now after the rest period you're cleared for a little bit of light activity stage two that's right stage two would be like light aerobic activity something like like a, a walking you know at a medium mm -hmm. pace or a stationary bicycle you know, right. something like that but you're not doing weight lifting or resistance training or that type of thing just like light physical activity with the goal being you just want to increase your heart rate a bit okay and for many people, that is their activity level permanently, stage two. Yeah. But I guess there is a stage three for active people. So when can you move to something a little bit more active? So if 24 to 48 hours uh, after doing like light aerobic activity, you're finding, yeah, yeah, my symptoms are still manageable, then sports-specific activity. So, mm. for example, somebody who plays basketball might start running uh, or doing drills on the, on the court. A soccer mm -hmm. player might dribble the ball up and down, that type of thing. Right. Um, so you're just trying to add movement to your uh, aerobic activity, but you're not yet doing things where you where you could, uh, you know, have to use coordination, uh, have to use uh, a lot of complex thinking. So you know you don't mm -hmm. you don't want somebody actually trying to play a, a practice game of basketball where they got to really be following the game, uh, where mm -hmm. they have to have uh, be sharp enough not to get hit or knocked over. You're just right. doing the drills. Right. And so after that stage. Then after 24, 48 hours, then you're moving to these sports specific activities. 
So then you can play contact sports at that point. So yeah, well, after 48, 24, 48 hours, if your symptoms are manageable, when you've been doing just your drills, then the next step up would be like non-contact practice. Mm-hmm. Um, or depending on your sport, that might just be doing like more intense training drills. The idea right. at that point is you're adding some of that more needing to use coordination, needing to think while doing the activity. You know, mm-hmm. like when you're at the stage of just doing, you know, sports specific drills, like dribbling the ball back and forth, you can do that kind of mindlessly. But if you're not right. talking about doing like a practice with another person, then that actually requires more thinking. Uh, but still it's non-contact because you don't want to do something where you might accidentally get knocked over again. So if that goes well for 24, 48 hours, then you would be doing uh, like full contact sports. The idea being, though, that you should be either completely asymptomatic at that point and ideally like medically cleared if you're doing a dangerous sport. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, it, it can't be overstated how if you're doing something like football or rugby or something like this, if you are not back to yourself, you know, if you're still having concussion then your concentration is not what it should be. Your reflexes aren't what they should be. And so the chance of you getting hit again during that game and getting a more serious head injury starts to increase quite significantly. Mm -hmm. So going back to the earlier example that you mentioned with Sidney Crosby, like he, he had a series of concussions, right? And each second, each, each one was a little worse than the one before, right? It was easier to get and the symptoms lasted longer so what would you have done if you were his physician? You would just keep him from playing, I guess. That's that's the message. Yeah, I mean, th- that's the thing. That, well, the conversation I'm often having with uh, with the young people I'm seeing in the emergency department, you know, they they have a concussion. You know, I'm saying, look, these symptoms are a concussion. Uh, but either they or the parents don't perceive that the symptoms are all that bad. It was bad enough to bring mm-hmm. them to the hospital. But then when I'm telling them, you know, you're not going to be able to play in the in the hockey tournament that's coming up in the next four days, then they're like, well, maybe the symptoms aren't that bad. And so that's what they're kind of asking me. He's like, well, you know, uh, like if I don't feel too bad, can I, can I go back to my, my full sports tomorrow? Mm-hmm. And what I'm saying to them is, well, look, uh, uh, generally speaking, if you don't follow my guidelines, it's not likely going to kill you. Uh, so <laughs> if you are in the NHL and you playing in this tournament is the difference of millions of dollars, right? For a million dollars, you might be willing <laughs> to play that sport and then endure potentially, you know, weeks, months, or years of persisting headache, nausea, dizziness, and you know, likely not being able to like play much beyond that. But mm. at your stage, you're not getting paid a million dollars to do whatever it is you want to do this weekend. <laughs> Uh, and so trying to persist in doing that may actually cost you from being able to do like higher level activity down the road, uh, especially mm-hmm. if it leads to you getting more concussions. So if your goal right. is to one day get to the NHL, you're better off actually taking the rest now instead of trying to like, push it. Hmm. So well, to answer your question then for Sidney Crosby specifically, if I was Sidney Crosby, I'd probably do what Sidney Crosby did. I'd push it and endure the pain and all the symptoms until <laughs> I made enough millions to then say, you know what, now I'm stepping away. Really? You would have done that? I mean, there's this whole other part of concussions that we haven't really touched on, which is which is the area of where all the research is now yeah. of what happens to people with these chronic concussions, right? Like they've had multiple concussions over their career. Usually yeah. we're talking about an athlete, right? Yeah. But sometimes it could be someone who's had multiple car accidents or something. And 
it, this conversation comes up a lot with football players and hockey players because right. what they've found now is, you know, there's a lot of players who used to play. They're now in their 50s and 60s and, you know, they die. A lot of them from, you know, there's a very high incidence of uh, substance abuse and mental health disorders. So when they die, they cut their brains open for for bio uh, for autopsies yeah. and find that they have something called CTE, like chronic traumatic encephalopathy. So that yeah. we think what's happening is that these guys have banged their heads so many times that eventually, you know, colloquially speaking, it turns to mush. Right? <laughs> their their cogn their cognition is just not there. Yeah. You know, you know, they're emotionally they're not able to manage. Yeah. And they're fi they're identifying signs of this in people who are even in their 40s and 30s who've had multiple concussions so you know i would push back and say you know even if you are a guy who's thinking about making millions of dollars and there there aren't that many of you guys out there but if there are you're also still weighing against the future of your entire life versus that money yeah right? well guaranteed no no child because this is a parenting podcast right so no parent right now who's listening to this has a child who is making millions of dollars who currently right now playing that next game will earn them another two million dollars <laughs> now that's because you think no one in our audience is that wealthy <laughs> I, well I, I don't think anybody under age 18 is likely going to be on a sports team that's paying them millions of dollars right? like you don't make that time money usually well, true money. okay yeah from a parenting perspective that is true but there are children out there whose parents know they have the potential to be making millions of dollars down the uh, road. Yes, they, that's a whole other thing, right? <laughs> if you're thinking, well, yeah, they're not making millions of dollars now, but if they go to this tournament and they get scouted, then they will be making millions of dollars. Well, look, <laughs> like that's uh, the bird in the hand is worth doing the bush. Right? <laughs> you, you are much better off getting proper rest so that you have a chance of being well enough to, to right. one day make that millions. Right. For most children, and I, I've seen this in the clinic, with head injuries, but with other sorts of MSK, like musculoskeletal injuries also, yeah. is that the child, you know, they're a competitive athlete. They're a high school level athlete. They're pretty good at what they do. It's important for them. They've been training for this tournament for years, right? Like they, they've been wanting to go to nationals, you know, for months. And yeah. now their ankle is sore, right? Or or now they've had a concussion. Like, can they still play? And it doesn't matter what type of injury it is. But when it comes to athletics, there's this whole idea that, you know, you want to push your body to the limit. Right. right. And I'll know when my body tells me that I can't go anymore. Right. Yeah. Don't nobody else tell me when that happens. Yeah. And I mean, that that's part of the culture of sport. Right. And yeah. the, the unfortunate side of it is that we tend to disregard these little niggling injuries. It's, it's not that different from the culture of, you know, people in the medical specialties. Right. You know, I'm going to go to work no matter what. Work will be the last thing to go. You know, I'm going to grind 80 hours a week and I'll be the last to know when it's time when I when I'm burnt out. Yeah. Same kind of idea that, you know, I think people need to be a little bit more aware of the bigger picture at work in all of these scenarios. Well, there's a there's a very specific uh, case that's a high profile case in Ontario about a high school rugby player who had had multiple concussions and even told her teammates, you know, yeah, I've, I've been having headaches and these things, but the only way I'm not playing in their like championship game is if I die. Uh, you know, she actually said something along those words. And so anyway, uh, what happened, she played while concussed, uh, got dropped on her head, like someone not like picked her up and dropped her on her head. And then she had like a sudden brain swelling and then actually died you know, on the field. Terrible. Um, so you know, that, that's the most horrific example that any parent could experience of this idea of 
yeah, no, like I'm going to take it for the team. I'm so committed to this sport and to, uh, to, and to all my teammates that I'm going to push myself to the limit, uh, even mm-hmm. if it kills me. Uh, you know, people say that. They don't actually expect to die from it. And, you know, that's the extreme example. But I think it, it underlines that point that none of these things are actually worth dying for. Do you ever feel like as we give this kind of advice, as because both of us are doctors, we're like, you know, because we're doctors, we come from that angle, you know, like we're like, take care of your body at all costs, you know, don't risk it. It's not worth it. Right. Yeah. I, you, you hear that all the time when people talk about motorcycles. Right. right? Like a lot of times, you know, a, a person gets into a motorcycle accident, a doctor looks at them and says, well, now, you know, you're not going to do that again, are you? Yeah. And actually, a lot of people are like, you know what? I love riding my motorcycle. Don't tell me what to do. You know, if I want to ride it, I'm going to ride it. And I understand the risks. Like, I'm not a fool. Yeah. But I enjoy this activity so much that it's worth it to me. Yeah. And so sometimes I do feel like as physicians, we're a little bit too much on the side of like, be cautious, be cautious. Well, I think that ties directly back into the whole hypothetical Sidney Crosby situation. You know, trying to be as objective as possible and taking a real step back and saying, okay, what what, what should Sidney Crosby do or any other professional athlete do? Mm. Well, you know, as physicians, we can tell you what the risks are. We can tell you what the consequences are. And yeah, mm-hmm. individual people can actually choose what consequences they want to endure. And I do mm. think legitimately some people actually would make the decision yeah, you know, even if I live 10 years shorter, and even if the last three years of my life, I, you know, I struggled with headaches and my mood was mm-hmm. low, well, for the rest of my life to be a millionaire, or, a, or a, I don't know if there's any billionaire athletes, but to be, you know, <laughs> famous, uh, rich, uh, live all that lifestyle, some people would actually say, yeah, I, I would definitely choose that. But at least we can make sure they're going in with a choice and not that they, after the fact, are like, nobody told me that this concussions could be this severe. <laughs> well, the examples are not usually so profound, right? It's, it's more like, you know, I just want to taste that, that rec league championship. If I can get that rec league championship that only me and my buddies know about, that's good enough. I'm willing to take years off the end of my life for that thing. <laughs> oh, yeah, I think a lot of people think they are. But, you know, to, 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 more to that point, there have actually been now a few high-profile cases or athletes who have actually said, yeah, I know I'm at the height of my game, but I am choosing to walk away now because yeah. of what I've discovered about how serious the you know, it, consequences can be of It concussion. specifically happened a bunch of times in the last couple of years in the National Football League. Right? Yeah. There's been a bunch of players who are like, you know, all pro level players at the peak of their game, they're in their like mid twenties saying yeah. I'm retiring from football, right? I'm, we're looking at it like, wow, this never used to happen. And it just goes to show that the understanding of head injuries in sports is evolving with time. Yeah. But it's funny. It's a sidetrack, but just that whole concept of, yeah, as physicians, of course, everything in life comes with a risk. And as a physician, you sort of think about everything as the bottom line being like health. Health is the most important thing above all other things. Right. Uh, if 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 physicians ran ran the world, things would be very different. Smoking, <laughs> there'd be no such thing as cigarette label warnings because there'd just simply be no such thing as cigarettes. <laughs> yeah. uh, legalized marijuana, what are you talking about? <laughs> things would be very different. But as physicians, all you have to think about is is just the health aspect. You don't have to consider, yeah, but what about people's freedom, right? A lot of people value that. What about I, the economy and people's opportunity I, to make money? I disagree, man. There are physicians out there who are perfectly in favor of, you know, legalized marijuana for various reasons. Yeah. Right? There are physicians prescribing this stuff. 
Uh, well, prescription marijuana is one thing. Right? I'm, I'm all for prescription medications. That doesn't mean that I think, uh, you know, ketamine should be an over-the-counter thing that you can choose to use when you feel like it. But this whole idea of physicians looking out for health, it is true. Like, we do come at everything from this angle, yeah, right? Yeah. And it is important to also remember there are other angles to look at things from. Yeah. 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 If physicians have been in charge throughout all of history, I mean, there'd be no such thing as a parachute. Probably no such thing as an airplane. <laughs> be like you're gonna fly off the ground do you know what could happen if you if you fell you could die <laughs> done actually physicians didn't really know much about the human body until like the last hundred years <laughs> right most of most of society would have con continued unfettered until maybe the 1950s <laughs> right when we actually figured out a little bit of something about the world that's true physicians had ran everything since the beginning of time so many people probably would have died from the mandatory bloodletting that we insisted upon <laughs> There would be nobody left. You know what we should we should make sure we don't forget to talk about just in this whole context of how dangerous concussion can be, these high profile cases of people dying, uh, is the whole concept of the second hit syndrome. Mm. Right? Because I think that case that I described, the high profile case in Ontario where somebody had a concussion and then afterwards had a brain injury with sudden swelling, the way that was reported in the media uh, gave the impression that, yeah, the person had uh, too many concussions and then died of another concussion. Mm. And when you, uh, the, the sort of medical name for that is second hit syndrome, which gives a lot of people the impression that, yeah, yeah, you can get another concussion that's going to just kill you. Mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, that's the understanding a lot of parents have and they live in a real fear of this. Right. I've heard parents say, I'm okay with my kid playing hockey until they get one head injury. Then I'm pulling them out. Yeah. Right? <laughs> because the second one is going to be the bad one. And that isn't exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. Well, so this, this second hit syndrome thing, it's actually not that clearly elucidated a, a medical concept. Uh, one could even say it's a little bit controversial. But the idea is that uh, when the brain has had multiple concussions, uh, you can get another injury that would, under regular circumstances, just be enough to probably give you concussion symptoms. But instead, you get this rapid swelling in the brain, uh, you know, over the course of minutes. And, uh, and then people have died from that. So it's, it's mostly defined or characterized by case reports. So it's happened a handful of times. People have collected that all together to try to write about it as a, as a medical entity. Uh, but I think the takeaway point is that it's not that they truly died of, of a concussion. It's not that they hit their head, had concussion symptoms, and we said, oh, then by definition, that's a concussion. And then pff, they just died. It's, it's probably better to think of it as if you go back to sports or dangerous activities while still suffering symptoms of a concussion, then you could be prone to getting a more serious injury than a concussion that can be life-threatening. And so although that is extremely rare, it's just one more good reason to, to you know, follow the instructions we're giving for slow returned activity and not putting yourself in a dangerous situation until you've fully recovered. I mean, I think we've touched on most of what I wanted to touch on about concussions. I think the last thing I would say is for people who are, you know, family members or friends or people around people with head injuries, try to be understanding of what the patient is going through because you can't see what they're going through. And many, many patients of mine who've had concussions over the years find that, you know, their school, their workplace, you know, people just aren't understanding about what, what's going on, right? Yeah. And if if you take anything away from this episode, you know, one is protect your brain, protect your kid's brain. But two, you know, when people do have concussions, let's, you know, give them the time and the space to get better slowly. And don't try to put more pressure on them to get better on what we perceive it would be a normal schedule, because sometimes there is no real schedule for this kind of thing. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, in, in my world, in the emergency department, where I'm seeing a lot of the concussions I see are from people who are, who are athletes. Hmm. Uh, there's that idea of, yeah, we, they want, maybe want to take things slow and you as the parent or the, or the friend have to be accommodating to that. And then there's a flip side where you actually have to be the parent telling them, look, 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 you got to slow down. Because some of these mm. kids, they just want to get back to their sport so badly mm. uh, or they feel such pressure to get back to the sport that mm. they, they do need to hear it from somebody that, look, it, it, it really is okay for you to miss a few games and you'll, you'll play more of your sport in the long run if we rest up now. But I just I love that idea of having understanding for people who are having things like concussion. Because I think a lot of life in general is when you're healthy, one, you take it for granted completely. Uh, <laughs> and two, you, you have a hard time sometimes sympathizing with people who aren't, who aren't healthy, especially right. when it's something that you don't... A good example is we all know what it's like to have a cough, right? All of us have had a cough at one point or another. But when you don't have a cough and someone around you does have a cough that won't stop, uh, you invari- invariably you start feeling like, well, stop it now. Okay, you could stop a little bit. You could try harder to not cough so much <laughs> until you're the one with the cough and like you're trying everything. You're holding your breath. You're trying not to swallow, and the cough just keeps coming. That that sounded a lot like my me trying to tell my four year old son to stop clearing his throat. Right? Like stop it. It's really annoying. Like I know you're doing it on purpose. <laughs> yeah. Well, next episode, next week's episode, motor ticks, <laughs> motor ticks, and how kids can't control them. Well, okay, let's let's change topic briefly before we go. Yeah, because I wanted to fill people in on what else has been going on because we can't just talk about medicine for the whole hour. Now, did we just talk about medicine? <laughs> now, the whole the a few weeks ago, we talked about board games, right? Yes. And so I went and took some of your suggestions for board games and purchased these things online. And I got to give you some feedback about the games we obtained because specifically we were looking for games that would be good for a four-year-old. Yeah. Right. So we started, I, I purchased Picture Charades. Nice. And Uno. Okay. Right. And then I realized my son is not able to intellectually handle either of these games. <laughs> he can't handle picture charades. <laughs> he couldn't handle picture charades. Like so, you tell him, pretend to be a monkey, and that's beyond him. Well, I'm holding up the card, yeah. right? I'm like, you got to act this out, right? So the card would have like, like uh, for example, like a crossing guard holding a stop sign, right? Yeah. So then my son would just stand there frozen in place, acting like he's holding a stop sign, <laughs> right? And then the funny thing was I was like, I realized because he's four and I maybe it's because of COVID yeah. and maybe we don't watch enough television or something. <laughs> he just doesn't have any contextual awareness of knowing what, you know, how would you act like a police officer? Right. Like my daughter could do it, right? My daughter's like, okay, police officer, you slap some handcuffs on somebody, you pull them behind bars. My son just kind of looked at it and was like, I'm just going to hold up the stop sign. <laughs> Right. He, and then I was like, well, what does a police officer do? And then I realized, well, you don't watch TV. You have no concept of what a, a police officer actually it's would like, do. Shoot black people. <laughs> well, he, like, I'm my Asian. Son, police officers never interact with me. <laughs> yeah. So that game was. But but then the funny thing, like the, the, the thing about this is that if people out there are thinking about obtaining this game yeah. for a four year old. I say go for it because what actually ensues is like golden, right? (laughs) Like my son starts looking at the charade and just starts just doing random actions, right? (laughs) His impression of like 
his impression of a teacher is actually a person that's dancing <laughs> and jiggling, <laughs> right? <laughs> you feel like Vanilla Ice is in the classroom. It's bizarre, but hilarious. So that game definitely is a winner. If anything, the charades are a little bit too easy once you pass like four, you know, four to five, I'm pretty sure. But, yeah. you know, just seeing your children do these actions is just unbelievable. Now, it's like now when I think back to when we first got the game and our kids were at their youngest and the youngest was at their youngest um, I remember what we would, we would start to do is they would start trying to act out and they couldn't figure it out. And then usually one of us as a parent or sometimes the other sibling would say, well, let's do this one together. And right. you would help them. And right. I remember there'd be things like, so the, the thing is a banana, right? And so as an adult, your first instinct, if you had to do charades for a banana is you imitate yourself peeling a banana and right. everybody's going to get it. But my kid sees banana. She lies down in the floor and tries to make herself look crescent shaped. <laughs> Okay, you got to do something. She's like, I am doing it. (laughs) What are you doing? I'm being a banana. Yes, that game is actually brilliant. It really lets you have a peek inside the brain of your children in a way that you could not do without that game. It's just amazing. Uh, Yeah, it is. It's fun. The funny thing is when you open the box for that game, it actually purposely tells you, do not play with a timer. There's no winners or losers. Yes. It's just a bunch of pictures. (laughs) (laughs) It stops short of saying it has every instruction other than actually put away the box. You could have played this without even buying this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that was one. And then the other game we purchased was Uno. Yeah. Right. This one is a this one actually is not too bad. Okay. Because it's a good way for children to, you know, understand, you know, even for very little kids to start to understand recognizing that numbers match and colors match. Yes. Yeah, it's not bad, but you know, it my daughter at at almost 7, she was not having it with this game. <laughs> like she first she was in a bad mood for some reason, so I finally took the game out. We're going to start playing. My son's into it. Like he wants yeah. to participate because he never gets to play card games. Yeah. But because he's, you know, four and completely confused, you know, he's showing half his cards, he's dropping his cards, he's stepping on his cards, like, like, it's chaos. And my daughter looks at us like, what's the point of this? This is exactly like Crazy Eights. Like, it's the same. What's the difference? (laughs) Right? Which is precisely my whole take on Uno for all (laughs) these years. (laughs) That's what it is. It's Crazy Eights for (laughs) four-year-olds. But... Actually, you know what? In this day and age of screen time and like, you know, social media bombardment, blah, blah, blah. Some good old fashioned board games. You really can't replace them. It's actually well worth your while as a parent, I think. It really, I mean, especially if you're viewing it through the lens of, you know, this is about family time and us spending time with the kids. Mm-hmm. If you're buying Uno and hoping that you can give it to your three-year-old and your four-year-old <laughs> and they'll go off and play it on their own while you get something done, it's not going to work that way. That's not the value in that game. Well, there you have it. There you have it. I will, I will report back when I obtain some more of these games, and we'll see how it goes. Okay, awesome. Well, I guess I'll leave it on one follow-up from one of our previous episodes. We talked about different comic books, and you recommended Calvin and Hobbes. Well, mm-hmm. my son, someone gave my son a Calvin and Hobbes book, and he thought it was awesome. So <laughs> Obviously, obviously. <laughs> it's the greatest comic ever. Now we just need to get him into Charlie Brown. <laughs> Uh, you know what? After seeing how well he responded to uh, to that suggestion of yours, I am going to try to give him a Charlie Brown book and see what happens. <laughs> I have already put it on my daughter's birthday list. It is it is sitting there. Actually, after we record the episode, because when we recorded that episode, my children had not read Charlie Brown. 
Yeah. And I was also a little bit concerned because Charlie Brown, like we said, is just not that funny. Yeah. But one day I dug out, like I have the, there's this set called like the Complete Peanuts, right? And I don't own the complete set because the complete set would run you like $2,000 because <laughs> each volume covers like two years and costs like $40 type of thing. Yeah. But I had I had bought the first two back when they were published, like in the early 2000s. And my uh, daughter is now the first person to have finished reading them because even I could not read those books. <laughs> <laughs> and the very, very original Peanuts is a little bit different. You know, like Charlie Brown is a main character, but none of the other main characters appears right away. Right. And the drawing style is different. Snoopy is like a fundamentally different dog yeah. in those early strips. But it's still pretty cute and funny. So, you know what? These classics have legs. So... <laughs> Score one for me. <laughs> we had an old Archie comic sitting in the car the other day while I was waiting with my five-year-old. And mm. so I was reading it to her. And she was laughing her head off just at the fact that <laughs> Jughead's always hungry. <laughs> Jughead's always eating. That's hilarious. I don't know. We could probably do an entire, at least half an episode on Archie himself. Yeah. There's some, there is some like uh, parts of that comic that aren't super appropriate for parents i feel like or for parents of young girls right yeah the idea that this guy is choosing all the time between two women <laughs> one of them who's like a crazy narcissist that's right but has a lot of money and yeah. is attractive and another one who's actually probably the perfect woman right? <laughs> yeah, right. and yet he's confused about this choice forever <laughs> that's right yeah uh, it, it is actually bang on accurate about the state of the typical man in that yeah, sense that's right you can tell that was originally conceived of in the 50s <laughs> all right well i hope people understand a little bit more about concussions and head injuries after listening to this remember stay safe in all the things you do don't rush back to activity and have some have some empathy for the people who are going through head injuries because sometimes you can't tell what they're actually going through that's right. And if you don't follow our advice and you keep continuing with activities and cognitively your brain is reduced to mush, well, you and your family can play picture charades and it'll be right at your level. <laughs> Way to tie it all together. <laughs> it all good... fits together. <laughs> Have a good week, folks. Bye, folks. <laughs>